Hello, hello, and welcome back to So Into That, the podcast where I get to chat with really awesome people about the things that we are really into right now. This is a special episode because it is our first solo episode. So this is something I plan on doing, I don't know, maybe once a month or so. I'll just come on by myself and chat about things that I'm up to right now. Um, I don't know, answer listener questions, maybe have some listeners on and we can like chat about things that we're into right now. I think that would be really fun. There are so many fun things that we can do by just having me. I'm loving all of the guests and like getting to meet all these cool new people, get to chat more with people who I'm already friends with who have been guests. It has been so, so, so much fun, but I'm also really excited about these solo episodes so we can just like chit chat just you and me. So that'll be fun. I submitted a question box or I did like a question box thing on Instagram last night asking you guys like, what do you want to hear more of when I do solo episodes? What should we chat about? And I got a great list. A few of those things I'm actually going to have guests help me with. So some of them were like marriage, parenting with your partner, like how do you get it done and not want to kill each other, Um, sex after babies, like a lot of questions about different marriage-related topics. And I'm going to have George on. I think A, I'd love to have like some marriage and like maybe this cool sex therapist who I follow on Instagram have them onto the podcast. That would be a separate thing. But I also want to have George on to answer some of the specific questions because I think we are good at like some of the things you guys ask. I think we're bad at some of them. And so I think it'll be fun to chat through them together and share any tips that we have and also like things that we are also working on since obviously I think people ask because it's something in their marriage or their partnership that they're struggling with and working on. Um, so some, so for some of these, we'll just be able to provide some solidarity and say, we're also struggling with that. But so I'm going to have George on soon. I really wanted him to be one of my first guests, actually. George has so much to say, and he's such an awesome human. That's why I married him. I, he's so awesome. And so I want to share more of him because all you guys get ever is like snippets of George, like taste testing food or I don't know, doing something ridiculous that I think is funny to put on my stories and he rocks. So he'll be on and we'll do like certain deep dive topics with George occasionally. I think that'll be great. I thought we'd kick off this whole episode the same way we kick off a normal so into that episode by chatting about the things that I'm really into right now. And I have two really good ones. Number one, if you follow me on Instagram, you know, we just moved back into the house that we've been renovating for huh, since last February. We just moved back in. We are in heaven. We are so happy. Everything is great. I love this bedroom. I love this wallpaper. If you're watching the video version of this, I'm stroking my wallpaper. I love these chairs. I love everything. My designer, Kate Hutchison out of Raleigh, did a freaking fabulous job. Obsessed. But there is one thing that I love so much that has just like made my days cozier and happier. And it's a simple thing. And that's why I want to share it with you guys because it's not like you have to renovate your house to do this. It would be like a plumber, you know, two hours of a plumber, but I think that's it. I think you just drill a little hole. Okay. An automatic hot water dispenser on my sink. Y'all, I'm obsessed with it. Instant tea party. Instant, like, if you've got, you know, schmutz, like, stuck to your pan and you're like, ugh, this is never going to come off. I literally just run the boiling automatic hot water on my pan, use like a spatula, gone. 
clean pan. I was making candied nuts last week and I used a wooden spatula, which you shouldn't do. You should always use silicone when you're silicone plastic. No, silicone because it doesn't melt. When you're like cooking with can with sugar because it hardens to wood and like won't come off. It's like super glue. But if you do it with silicone, it just slides right off. So I used a wooden spatula like a ding dong and it hardened to it. And I just underneath the hot water dispenser, boiling water, psh, off obsessed. There's so many use cases. George and I have been like having tea in bed every night. Ugh, I'm it just it's it's lovely. I'm not where I'm not I'm not a coffee drinker, so instant tea all the time just makes me so happy. Heating up bottles, I don't do that anymore, but if I did, I could see how that would be really convenient. I just I don't know. I can't say enough good things about the hot water dispenser. So that's my product of the week. And then my like sort of life thing that I'm really into right now. And this to the wrong ears will sound like I that like there's a problem. But I think most of you are the right ears and you'll understand exactly what I'm saying. My thing that I'm really into is like small doses of time apart in a marriage. Let me explain. When George was in the military, which was the first four or so, yeah, four, I don't know, three, four years of our marriage, he would like be gone for nine months and then home for a month and then gone for a week and then home for a month and then gone for two weeks. When military people are home, you know, air quotes, quote unquote, home, aka not deployed, they aren't really home. They're constantly doing like different training things, um, certifications, conferences, whatever. They travel all the freaking time, especially, I don't know, especially, I've never ma been married to somebody who wasn't a Navy SEAL, but I, I have heard that especially SEALs travel a lot because they have very specific, you know, qualifications that they have to keep up on. What's it called before they go on a deployment? A pre-deployment workup? Is that going to be that simple? Something where like basically for six months before SEALs deploy. So before they leave, they're basically gone for six months because they're like in the Florida Keys doing dive training. And they're – anyway, SEALs are gone all the time. And I missed him, of course. And it sucked. The long deployments absolutely suck. Don't Don't ever recommend, you know, that. But these like one one week apart things really made me miss him and like to sound like a Jane Austen book, like long for him. I've talked to a lot of my military spouse friends and followers about this exact thing. And I think that in a marriage, when one of like when neither of you travels for work often, you don't get that sense of like longing. Like he walks through the door at the end of a work day and I'm like, sup. Like if that, you know, like if I even remember to acknowledge him, I'm working on that and just like making the event of him coming home or me coming home more of like a, hey, how are you? How was your day? Like how you would greet a friend. I say that a lot to George. I'm like, treat me how you would treat a friend. Like if your friend did something really stupid, <laughs> left the stove on while they went on like a two, you know, five mile walk, you know, something really stupid. Would you like be horribly angry at them or would you be like you idiot don't do that next time probably the latter so anyway I'm working on uh you know when we're not traveling when we're not having set time apart also just being really excited when he gets home 
Um, but it's hard because like you just saw them and like your life is a little bit monotonous, especially when you're parents and you're both working. Like there's not a ton else going on. Like that sounds like I'm bored with my life and I'm not at all. It's just where we are right now. Like we're not traveling a lot. We're not doing a ton of stuff outside of work and taking care of these three mongrels. Um, so when we, when we do travel, like I went on a trip to San Diego earlier this month, he is on a work trip in New York and then he goes straight to San Francisco. So he's gone for a week right now. And it's just kind of nice to like have a little separation when you are married and you're together all the freaking time, especially we were just together for the holidays. The holidays are so intense, like so much together time, especially when you have three small children, like it's really a lot of intense together time. And so a little separation. Uh, so I hope that that makes sense. And you all aren't like, oh, poor Caroline, she's going to get divorced next week. Because I'm really deeply obsessed with George. But I think having, you know, four days apart every now and then is just like so good for a marriage, like for him to come home and me to like, wrap my arms around him and be like, oh, I missed you. Like that just feels so good, you know, to be like, really like, God, you're my fucking person and I missed you and I'm so happy you're home. Like, you just don't get that when you're in the day-to-day minutiae of life and of raising children. So that's what I'm really into. Glad you're on a work trip right now, George. By the time this podcast posts, no, you'll still be on your work trip. So hope you're listening to this from San Francisco. Hope that JP Morgan conference was worth it because I'm probably going absolutely apeshit with your children at home right now. Okay. <laughs> Here's what we're going to talk about next or this week. Okay. So you guys submitted a ton of really good questions in the Instagram question box that I did. A lot of them were just kind of asking me to tell like, what's my story? How did I become a creator? How did I become a food person? How did I become a recipe developer? Like, what's my sort of villain origin story? Like, where does this all come from? And then also there were a lot of questions around, like, what's my business? How do I make money? You know, what are sort of like, like, what's my day-to-day look like? So I was thinking I'd break it up into two podcasts for this first solo episode. I'll tell my full villain origin story. And then for the next one, I'll go into the specifics about like what my businesses are, how I make money from them, who my team is, maybe even talk about like a day in the life, like what my childcare situation is like right now, um, all of that, how I get shit done. But first today, we'll dive into how I become a recipe developer, creator, all the things that I currently am. When somebody asks me, like when I meet a new gal at a party and she's like, what do you do? I, I literally don't ever know what to say. It's a different thing every time. I usually say cookbook author because that just like gets cuts to the chase the best. But anyway, we'll go more into my job. Next solo episode today, we're going to dive into how I got to where I am now. So hello, I'm Caroline Chambers. <laughs> I'm 34 years old. I was born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Um, you've all met my parents on my Instagram stories. Crash and Tommy, they're the best parents in the entire world. What's up? I went to boarding school, which lots of requests for a boarding school deep dive episode. So I'll definitely do that, but we're not going to do that today. Went to boarding school in New Jersey, and then I went, came back to North Carolina, went to UNC Chapel Hill. The reason that that part is important at all is because at UNC Chapel Hill, who did I meet but George Hodgen. George moved straight to San Diego after college. We kept dating. We had tons of breakups. Maybe that'll be a whole episode too, like George's and my love story. Because, wow, there was some, it was a saga to get to where we are today. Uh, We dated from my freshman year 
spring all the way through my senior year. He was in San Diego. He moved to San Diego after graduation. He was two years older than me. I moved to New York after graduation, you know, couldn't move straight to San Diego. And also we had like many more breakups in our future. Little did we know (laughs) the love story episode will be its own thing. Don't worry. Lots to tell there. Moved to New York. I worked in advertising for several years. I think I always knew I would be leaving New York imminently. Like George was in California. I was going to end up with George eventually. So I never like fully put down roots in New York, like career wise. I put down lots of roots. Had so many amazing friends in New York. Living in New York in your lower 20s is like the most trying and also most amazing experience ever. Everyone should have to live in New York City at one point. Like, wow, you really get tested, tested, tested. There's this great quote in one of my favorite Emily Henry books, um, Book Lovers, that is about, it's like, you're not a real New Yorker until you've cried in public. And man, that is the truth. Like there's this part in the book where like she's sobbing, walking down the street and a stranger just hands her a tissue, like power walks past her, hands her a tissue and just keeps walking. Like doesn't ask how she is. Is just like, here's a tissue, <laughs> keeps walking. And that about sums up living in New York. Like, wow, it is the hardest thing ever. Also the best thing ever. So anyway, worked in advertising, never like fully loved it. So when I ended up moving to San Diego with George because he was stationed out there with SEALs. I got there and I sort of started looking again for advertising jobs because like that's what I knew. That's what I had done. That's what my resume said. I always wanted to be in food, but I didn't really want to be in restaurants. I didn't want to be a food blogger. So I was like, what else is there? What do I want to do? And George, God bless you, George, was like, take a moment. Like, what's the rush? Like, take a sec. I mean, George is like the most practical, like money-saving person ever. So the fact that he did this is shocking. And he wasn't like, take the first job possible. He was like, take a beat and figure out how to do it, how to work a job that you'll actually love. Um, I, I talked to a few restaurants. I staged, aka interned in a few restaurants trying to figure out like, could I figure this? Would I like this? Like, could this be what I want to do? It was not. I hated it. I hated like the drama of restaurants. I hated the politics of restaurants. I hated, oh my God, everything about it other than putting out food. I loved creating like beautiful food and I learned a lot doing that. Very willy nilly. Everyone in my life was like, what you're doing? What? I decided to start a catering business. I remember like laying in bed beside George in our like 200 square foot guest house that we rented in Coronado and being like, I'm going to start a catering company. And he was like, um, catering. He was like, have you ever done that? And I was like, no, not ever. He was like, okay, I think, yeah, you'd be great at that. And I was like, all right. Next day drove to the, you know, city of San Diego business licensing office, whatever the hell it's called. Got my license to operate Cucina Coronado. Um, by the way, took like 15 years, of, no, 20, yeah, 15, 18 years of Spanish. Like my whole life took Spanish, was a Spanish minor at UNC, marched into the business licensing office <laughs> in San Diego thinking that Cucina Coronado meant Coronado Kitchen in Spanish. It doesn't. That's Cucina is an Italian word. So everybody thought that it was like an Italian catering business. 
they would have thought that it was a mech, uh, a Spanish catering business. So I don't know what, I don't know. Cucina Coronado. It has a freaking ring to it, right? Cucina Coronado. But yet yeah, it wasn't Italian food. So, I mean, lots of Italian food was cooked, but that was not the focus. Anyway, fun little fact that like six months into operating my business, I was like, wait, Cucina is an Italian word, not a Spanish word. <laughs> Lol. So, started Cucina Coronado. George deployed pretty quickly after, so he had moved to San, moved to Norfolk, moved back to San Diego with me after we got married. And so I really had the opportunity to, I had no friends, knew no one. And I never remember feeling like sad or lonely because I was so into this business. Like I was cranking, I was ripping, I was driving my beach cruiser around the streets of Coronado. If you've never been to Coronado, California, think Pleasantville, but with palm trees it is the most lovely. I love Coronado, California so much. Like would love to spend more time there in my life. Don't know if we'll ever live there again, but like would love to spend the summers there or something. It's just an idyllic place. It's got the transient energy of a military town, but also so many people like Californians who also live there and are really welcoming to the military community. There's two separate military communities on this really small island off the coast of downtown San Diego. North Island is like pilots and big boat people. Naval? Naval? Oh, George, I'm sorry for that. I don't know this. Boat people? <laughs> oh, fuck. I don't know the word. Boat people and airplane people on North Island in Coronado. And then on the other side, on the south part of the island, is the big SEAL base, the big like West Coast SEAL base. So tons of military energy, surfers, military, just oh, it's the best town. I was about to say good food, but that's not really true. It doesn't have a ton of great restaurants, but like that's fine. It's got Coronado Brewery. Anybody ever had a Coronado Brewery beer? Uh, what's their really famous one? Orange Avenue Wit is really good, and they also have tons of IPAs. Great brewery. Ah, just ugh, heaven. So I never remember feeling like lonely. I'm sure I had anxious and lonely moments. Oh, we also got Hooper, our dog. So like I was training this like absolutely insane Labradoodle, starting this business. So basically, I since he was deployed, I really quickly grew this business. I got a commercial kitchen space. I would drive my beach cruiser around the streets of Coronado and put flyers on every single business. And slowly but surely, I started to book business. So I started small, little birthday party here and there, a little corporate like luncheon. And then all word of mouth people heard about me, heard about me. I had the number one, I'm saying this because it shocks me, not because I'm bragging. I had the number one catering business in San Diego on Yelp. The number one catering company. And it was me. I was the only employee. It's just that I freaking hustled and I made people, you know, I made people leave Yelp reviews and I talked to every single person I, you know, worked with. I loved it so much. I mean, I would never do it again. Catering will wreck your body. You're hauling gigantic, you know, pounds and pounds of like meat and poultry and produce. You're going to the farmer's market first thing in the morning to get the best produce. You're having to establish these relationships with farmers. It's to like get the best produce, get them to set aside the box of perfect navel oranges for you. It is a grind, but it was amazing. I knew, I drove all over San Diego. I worked in every single corner of that county. I did, I started small. Like I said, I started with a 
you know, little corporate events, birthday parties. By the end, I was doing 300 person weddings. I had this full team. I would send out, there was a listserv for all the seal wives and I would send out like, who wants to work tonight? Every, I mean, I had people who would repeat work for me, but I would show up to most events because I was just freaking faking it until I was making it. I would show up to weddings with people who I'd like never met and be like, okay, you go over there and clear that table. You go over there. Not a lot of pre-planning and it worked. One of my like most loyal Instagram followers who like cooks all my recipes. She's so lovely. Hello, Lindsay. I hope you're so so into that listener because I'm talking about you. I catered her wedding. I think it was like 250 people in her, I can't remember if it was her, her house. Yeah. I think it was her parents' backyard or her husband's backyard, parents' backyard. I can't remember. Huge wedding. And it was, I mean, she says, she was like, everyone still raves about how it was the best food ever. It was amazing. All I remember is being back of house, AKA in the garage of this house. We had a huge like kitchen set up and being like, what the fuck am I doing? Like I'm catering the most important day of somebody's life. And like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but that's not how the bride took it. And so that's really all that matters. Fake it till you make it, baby. That, if I had to like sum up each section of my career, fake it until you freaking make it would be my Coronado chapter. I catered events in Palm Springs, like huge fancy events. I once did a full, it was like a four day, they they rented out this like gorgeous Palm Springs house and I was like their in-house chef for four days. I hired one of my best friends, Sarah Peck, what's up, to – she had just broken up with her boyfriend in LA. I, so I was like, come with me. Come do this event with me. Like I had rented a separate Airbnb. I was like, we'll, we'll like, you know, we'll suntan in between. No, we did not suntan. Sarah had just been dumped by her boyfriend of like four years. She was Saw. Every time I would look over, she'd be like washing dishes, silently just sobbing, tears running down her face. And I would look at her and be like, <gasps> uh, and like try to like appease the bride was like in the house with us the whole time. It was like they'd rent this house, 40 of them. And it was like a full wedding weekend thing. Like that was what they did. They got married on one of the days. Sarah was just sobbing the entire time. <laughs> like when I think back about it of that weekend, I think of like this bride running around in like a tiny white bikini and my friend Sarah just like sobbing while she did dishes. I could go on. I have so many amazing stories from my catering life, but we have to move to the next portion. So while I was running Cucina Coronado, not Cocina Coronado, I started getting a lot of inquiries from like magazines, little like local brands to do recipe development for them. And I would start taking on these jobs. So one of my friends, Capel, actually worked and still works for a PR firm called the Force and Stevens in New York. And she like a year into Cucina Coronado was like, Hey, do you ever do recipe development? And I was like, no, but I could. She was like, great. I have this job for Woodbridge wine. They need like five recipes developed that pair with these wines. I had met a bunch of wedding photographers through catering weddings. So I hired one of them to come take the photos of these recipes that I developed I had no idea how to write a recipe. Like when you're a caterer, you don't really know how to like properly write a recipe, right? You just do it, teach other people how to do it. You don't like write it down properly. You like jot notes down. So I learned how to properly write recipes. And like at the end of the day, she paid me. I mean, I can't even remember what it was back then. Probably like $200 a recipe or something. And I was like, holy shit. Because I made, you know, $800 
on and all I I didn't even leave my house like I was like whoa that was so much easier than catering the end of a catering gig like a small one I would probably only make $800 and I would have had to like schlep all the way to freaking La Jolla and back and like rent it out a commercial kitchen space you get the drill. I realized I could make so much more money with so much less effort in recipe development. So I started really actively pursuing those opportunities, reaching out to magazines, reaching out to brands, putting together an actual portfolio, actual portfolio for that type of work. Um, This is like towards the end. George is getting out of the military soon, right? We're move. I guess at this point we like know we're moving up to Palo Alto area because George is getting out of the military. He's using his GI Bill to go to Stanford Business School to sort of like transition out of the military into the business world. Um, so I start like really building this portfolio in recipe development. So as I start to look for jobs in the Bay Area because we're moving. I run across this job description for a test kitchen job at a place called the Culinary Edge in San Francisco. And I ended up working there for a year in the test kitchen. And then I also like sort of ran like logistics. So the Culinary Edge TCE is a company that basically develops menu strategy and then the actual recipes for major food brands across the country. So like Starbucks, Panera, Quiznos, McAllister's. Not only do they create the recipes, but we also like cost out exactly how much that burger is going to cost like in each different area of the country. Can they logistically get this ingredient in every single store across the country? Or like, is it only accessible on the East Coast and we're going to have to find a different one on the West Coast and develop a different recipe because it's going to be slightly different on the mm-hmm. West Coast? Lots of logistics. Um Working in the test kitchen, <laughs> that job was like one of the most, whew, it was like incredibly stressful, just like a really high stress environment, moving really fast, lots of jobs. That's what I'll say about that year. The most important part for my villain origin story, though, of that career spot, number one, I had the best job in the world, Ben Pote. Oh, do not expect you to be listening to this, but man, Ben Pote, maybe your wife is listening to this. She's one of my followers. Pilar, love you. Had the best boss in the world who just took the time to like sit down and teach me how to properly write recipes. And I really credit that. I think I'm a really good recipe writer. Like there, I said it. I think I'm really good at writing recipes that are easy to understand, clear. A lot of recipe developers write recipes in the wrong order. Like you write your ingredients in the order that you use them in the recipe. And a lot of these food bloggers just don't even know that. I can't even follow these recipes. So I really credit that time of my life with teaching me to be really good at writing recipes. So basically my job was to like in the kitchen, in the test kitchen, we would develop these recipes and, you know, be jotting them down like a caterer, like a chef on rough notes. And then I would take those rough notes sit down at my computer and write line level instructions on how to actually cook them. So line level, basically meaning like when that 14 year old who works at Quiznos in Milwaukee looks at this, how does he know how to make the, I mean, what is it? What do you even make it? Quiznos? I don't know, but line level instructions on how to actually cook the recipe. So it has to be really well written, really simple, really clear. Um, And that was my job. 
I did that for a year. Had to get that F out of there because it was, first of all, my favorite boss in the world left. Ben, you left me. And so I had to get out of there. Um, not just because Ben left because it was a really crazy work environment. Um, so I left TCE. Also, it was like a good a good moment. I probably would have stuck with it for at least two years. But George was at Stanford Business School. So he had done his first year at Stanford. I had done my first year at this job. He was looking for summer internships in SF at first so that I wouldn't have to leave. And then when I was like, I got to get the hell out of here anyway, like I'm going to quit this job. So we may as well go somewhere fun for the summer. Like we had to give up our lease. It was student housing. We had to go somewhere else anyway. So I was like, let's go somewhere, you know, out of Palo Alto for the summer kind of hated Belo Alto to be honest. So we went to New York for the summer, which was like such a great redemption round for New York for me. We got an apartment. I mean, our apartment was still like a heap, but it was at least like big and it didn't have rats in it. Like my last one with my friends, Capel and Carver on, on, on um, Broadway and Prince Street. Uh, so this one was like big and comfortable and it was down in Tribeca and we just like had the best summer. Like all my friends still lived there because the pandemic hadn't happened, so they hadn't all flown fl- flown the coop yet. All my UNC friends were there. So many of my Lawrenceville friends were there. It was just the best summer, and I got a job through my girlfriend, Margaret Cheatham, um, was working for the New York Times at the time, and she got me connected to this photographer who does a lot of their food photography. So I styled Melissa Clark's – Melissa Clark is a – fabulous food recipe developer and food writer and she writes a column for the new york times and i styled her column with andrew scrivani the food photographer for the summer and so i would hike up from tribeca to his studio in the east village probably every other day and we would shoot big full shoot days i did a lot of um styling for he does also eating well magazines i did a lot of recipe styling that summer a little bit less development. I started to do, I, I always kept, while I was at TC, I always kept doing freelance recipe development stuff. So I always had just like a few clients in my back pocket. So a little freelance recipe development, um, this food styling gig with Andrew Scrivani, which was so fun to like get to work with other people, just like really creative, cool people. And the work felt really important, like New York Times and I don't think I got a byline. I don't think my name's anywhere on the New York Times. I think it just says Andrew Scrivani. That's fine. But it just was cool. And it was like, these are big recipes that like hundreds of thousands of people are seeing and were like actually printed in the New York Times paper, not just on the internet. So that that job rocked. And Andrew, again, I had a great mentor. Andrew was an amazing mentor, took the time to like sit down, talk to me about the food industry, food media, what it all meant. Really cool guy. If anybody ever needs like a really good food photographer, Andrew Scrivani is awesome. So during that summer, I reconnected with one of my UNC friends, Sarah Smith, who is an agent. She's a literary agent. She does a lot of cookbook authors. Um, She's a literary agent at an agency called David Black Agency, which is like a really great literary agency. Um, She knew I was working in food. She knew this like I was planning on, you know, not going back into the corporate world. Like I'm going to be a freelance recipe developer from now on. So I, I mean, A, she's a friend, so we wanted to hang out. But B, we connected on like a professional level. She's like, well, would you ever want to write a cookbook? Do you want to like do you want me to sign you as one of my, you know, as what a client? Um, is that of interest to you? And I was like, no, you know, I don't want to write a cookbook until I have like a specific purpose. Like 
Is it like I'm writing, you know, a Southern food cookbook about like food in Chapel Hill? Like a very, I wanted like a very specific focus. I didn't just want to be like another freaking white woman writing a cookbook about nothing because I didn't have like an Instagram following. I didn't have like a purpose for writing a cookbook yet. She was like, totally get it. Great call. A month later, George and I are in Thailand. He did like a extra little month internship in Thailand. Oh, it was so fun. I've written about it a lot in What to Cook if you've ever read that, but we'll discuss that another time. So we spent a month in Bangkok. Sarah calls me at like midnight. She's like, can, can we set up a call? The only time we could talk was at like midnight Bangkok time, which was whatever time in New, in New York. And she was like, so crazy thing. I know you only want to write a book if there's like a real purpose. She was like, I just had lunch with one of the editors at Chronicle, one of the best cookbook publishing houses. She had lunch with any editors at Chronicle, and they are looking for somebody who is newly married, a recipe developer who has like a really cool story like, oh, I don't know, her husband's a Navy SEAL and they've moved all across the country. And I was like, what? You think they would want me to write it? And she was like, I think you should write a proposal and we should try. And so basically they were like kind of getting a few names and accepting proposals and then going to pick one. So I wrote a proposal, spent like a month writing this 50 at least page proposal with full recipes, like stories, um, the chapters, blah, 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 every single recipe that was going to be in the book, like written out. And we submitted it. We had this like great call with the editor at Chronicle and I got that deal. And that is Just Married. So that's how I got the Just Married cookbook deal. It was like this very bizarre thing that doesn't normally happen. happen. Getting a cookbook deal is like pretty hard right now. And if you don't have like a huge Instagram following these days, you just don't get a cookbook or, you know, have like one of the best restaurants in the world that people really know your name or you have a show or whatever. You have to have your, your own audience to get a cookbook deal. And I did not. And I got a cookbook deal through this like weird back channel. Like they knew exactly what they wanted. They wanted a cookbook written by a newly engaged or newly married person that would be like a gift for engaged or newly married people. And so that's how I got the Just Married cookbook deal. So I went home, went back to Palo Alto for Georgia's second year. I wrote the cookbook. I mean, I could really dive into cookbook writing on one episode, but it's a lot. But I wrote the cookbook um, over the course of the year, kept doing freelance recipe development stuff to make money. Also just had like the best freaking year ever. Oh, it was so fun. My friend Lexi, who her husband was also in school with George. My friend Lexi lived like a mile from where I lived. We started playing golf. We had like this like ladies who lunch year of our lives. I feel like now as a freelancer or whatever I am, not a freelancer. I don't know what I am. Now as somebody who works for myself, I find myself like having to, I don't know, I overcompensate. I work like so hard because like the more I work, the more money I make and the more my career advances. And I was not in that mindset. I, I also didn't have kids then, whatever. I was not in that mindset in 2017 when I was writing this book. I was like, YOLO. I was going out every night. I was going out like a business, business school kids like party, like business school is not that hard. Anyone who's like, oh, Stanford business school is so hard. Like, yeah, right. These kids are partying every single night. And I was right there with them. It was so fun. George was, of course, like taking the hardest possible classes. So he was working his ass off, like never going out. And I was partying like it was 1999. Okay. So that was that year. We then moved down to Carmel area for George's job. Again, we'll talk more about that on another episode. How we ended up here. We moved down to Carmel. I 
had promised myself and everyone around me that I would never take another corporate job again. I was like, I'll never work for someone else. I'm only going to freelance. So I started freelancing for this kitchen appliance startup called Mealthy. And it was basically a competitor to Instant Pot. If you remember like the Instant Pot rage of 2018, everyone was freaking pressure cooking everything. And this was a competitive company to that. And it was growing really fast. It had a ton of funding. And so my little freelance recipe development gig for them very quickly grew into me managing a team of 20 recipe developers. And I was like the head of culinary development for this company. And so what started as a freelance thing turned into a full-time position, which was great. It was like great money, great experience. I was just in the kitchen all the time, managing 20 other people, telling them which recipes to develop. Lots of great relationships, also lots of crazy relationships as it goes with startup life. Got pregnant with Mattis and that was kind of the end of that. It needed, it had run its course. Uh, so got pregnant with Mattis, had Mattis. 2019 was my year of just like being an anxious ass mom and barely getting anything else done. I honestly think that my salary in 2019, we just wrote off. Like it was just like, this is, we wrote it off as a loss. We were in the red. Like I didn't make enough to even talk about. Um, I was still, of course, doing freelance recipe development here and there, but it was nothing to uh nothing to brag about if you know what i mean and of course i know all of the supportive women out there are being like cut yourself a break you had your first baby totally agree totally agree so glad that i did it that way wish i hadn't been just like a completely anxious troll during this like year off that would have been fun if i had been like able to enjoy my you know basically sabbatical year uh but that's not the way it went and that's okay we learned a lot by being an anxious mom we learned not to be an anxious mom by being an anxious mom. So that's okay. I feel like whenever I talk about that first year of Madison's life and how anxious I was, I make it seem like it wasn't also like a very joyful year. And it was, it was all, it also rocked. We had a ton of fun, but I just had a lot of anxiety in my brain. There wasn't a lot of space in my brain for anything other than like, how do I keep this baby alive? How do I keep myself alive? <laughs> and like, just kind of going through the motions. There was a lot of fun had. We went to the beach all the time. We went out to eat all the time. So many margaritas were drunk in 2019. But it was also just a hard year of figuring out how to be a mom and how to be a working mom and like what that all looked like. So 2019 was kind of a wash. I did manage to write the proposal for my book, a book concept that I had, which was called What to Cook When You Don't Feel Like Cooking. And in it, every recipe would be really simple. You know, the instructions list would be short. The, the ingredients list would be short. Everything that you guys now know, what to cook, we don't feel like cooking my newsletter, is what this proposal was. And I took it to, back to Chronicle because they had write a first refusal on my second book. And they were like, we love it. We love it. But like, you just need an audience to sell this book. Just Married, like Crate and Barrel still sells Just Married because they like wanted a book about marriage. And so it, it sells itself. It doesn't need like a big name behind it. They were like, you don't have an Instagram audience. Like you don't have, you need a name. Come back to us when you do. And I was like, and so I took it to all the other publishers and they all said the same thing. And I was like pissed instead of listening and starting to grow my Instagram audience. Like they all said I should. I was like, F this. I'm an actual recipe developer. Why are these bloggers who like have no experience in test kitchens, in catering, why are they getting book deals and I'm not? So instead of 
listening and just doing what they said, starting to grow my audience, I rebelled. I like went off Instagram. I like deleted it from my phone. I was like, fuck this. I am better than this. Like I'm just going to be a professional recipe developer for the rest of my life then. Like screw cookbooks. I didn't really mean that. I had always wanted to grow my own brand. Like having my own TV show one day was like a goal, but I just sort of like rebelled. I was pissed that I couldn't get a cookbook deal. Okay. I was like mad. So I like rebelled against everything they were telling me. Fast forward, March 2020, March 17th, I think is the day in Monterey County that we shut down like official stay in your house, don't leave orders. On March 16th, I was in downtown Monterey at a food photography studio shooting a huge campaign for, I kid you not, Corona beer. So all the news is like coronavirus, coronavirus, coronavirus. And I'm working on this like $25,000 campaign for Corona beer. Of course, I like submitted those photos, those recipes. They are just like lost in cyberspace. They never got used because all brands, all magazines, everyone just stopped advertising food. If you recall, March 2020, like the food was off the shelves. You couldn't get any ingredients. You couldn't find anything. So all of my recipe development clients went away. So like I finally had kind of gotten like my feet back under me. We had moved into this house. I had a one-year-old. Like I was like, okay, I got this. Like I'm going to rebuild, build up my career, build up my client list. And then they all went away. I remember like, you know, March 25th, let's say, looking at George and being like, I think this is going to stay a while. It seems like this is like a thing. I'm going to try, I'm going to use this downtime where I don't have anything else to do because all my clients are gone and I'm going to build my brand. I'm going to like start trying to grow an Instagram audience and build my own brand. And it was sort of in the back of my head, like so that I can get a cookbook deal one day, but also just like, it kind of feels like you just have to have an Instagram audience to like do anything. If you want to be like a talent in television, if you want to have a like if you want to have a column in a newspaper like you need to build your own brand first these days so i was like all right this is it this is my moment and so back to all of the ingredients being off the shelves everyone was at home cooking but nobody knows how to substitute how to sop swap and sub ingredients they're like i have chicken but i don't have pork but this recipe calls for pork but i want to make this recipe how you know how do i do it and so i started doing these question boxes on instagram being like tell me what's in your fridge and i'll tell you what to make for dinner and those like went really were really i had like 3000 followers on instagram at this point just from like having the cookbook having my catering company so i was starting with like a base of let's say 3000 and i would post a question box answer these questions. I would post recipes and then I would post just like I do now with what to cook when you don't feel like cooking. I would write a substitution for every single ingredient. You don't have white flour, use this. You don't have sugar, use this. You don't have honey, use this. You don't have this type of pasta, you can use this kind. Just cook it for two minutes less, whatever. Really in-depth notes. And I, I think because of that, I really quickly grew my audience on Instagram. I did so much free stuff. Brands, love when creators will do free stuff for them and we're you know now I would never because I'm like value my work at the time I was like devalue me take advantage of me what can I do you know give me send me a jar of peanut butter and I will create a recipe with it as long as you'll post it on your page I was pouring myself out to the masses like anything I did so much free stuff for exposure and I think I mean it kind of worked I started also during 2020 doing teaching Zoom cooking classes. I grew this like 
successful Zoom cooking class business. And I ran it for about a year and a half. It was a subscription based. I'm sure many listeners were subscribers, but it was, uh, I think it was $35 a month. No, maybe $50 a month. And you got to come. I did a class every single week. We cooked a, we had, we made a cocktail together and then we cooked a full meal together. It was so much fun. I loved it. I also, so I had the subscription and then I also was doing private classes, which I charged a lot more money for, obviously, because they were corporate, they were birthday parties, things like that. I was like tonning it all of a sudden. Like I'd gone from my negative year the year before to like all of a sudden I had this skill that I could offer and that I had direct ways to make money from. It was very empowering and exciting. What I realized towards the end of 2020, after I'd been doing these online cooking classes for seven months, let's say, what I realized was that not everyone can show up to a class. Um, Not everyone wants to spend two hours of their week that way, but everyone can benefit from the way that I teach. And I think I teach and like, there's like this sort of culinary school way of teaching, which is like, everything must be perfect and everything must be in this order. And then there's the busy working parent way of teaching. And we have a lot of hacks and we have a lot of tricks and we do things faster and not everything's like cooked in the perfect like culinary school way, but it turns out delicious, Uh, but it saves you time and it saves you effort. And I realized that I could write recipes that way on paper I didn't have to say it out loud, like on my Instagram stories or in Zoom cooking classes. I realized I could also write recipes that way in a really personal way as if I was standing there in the kitchen with you and they could reach a lot more people that way. Again, not everyone wants to take a cooking class for two hours a week, but everyone can open their email on a Sunday. So that's when I launched What to Cook We Don't Feel Like Cooking as a newsletter. And that has completely changed like the course of my career. What to Cook is like my number one revenue source. It's the number one thing that I spend my time and effort on. It's a weekly, if you're not familiar, which you probably are if you're listening to a podcast about me, uh, it's a weekly recipe. It comes out every single Sunday. Um, it's the number one food and beverage substack which is basically a newsletter platform if you're not familiar. Substack is the number one fastest growing independent publishing site in the world. So all these writers from the New York Times, Washington Post are leaving those, those traditional places where they're being paid poorly. Writers are not paid a lot and they're growing their own they're using Substack to grow their own personal audiences and be paid directly for it, as opposed to the Washington Post paying them $75,000 a year. They're asking their audience that they've built up, that they have trust with, to pay them directly. And so that's what I did in March, no, December 2020. I probably had 15000 maybe Instagram followers at the time. And I was like, this is a risk. But I did it. I was very nervous. I was nervous to ask people who are used to finding recipes on the internet for free and from me on the internet for free. I was very nervous about asking them now to pay for recipes. But having for the past nine months built this rapport with my audience of, hey, I'm going to provide notes and subs. My recipes are going to be written really well, really simply, really as if I'm standing in the kitchen coaching you through it. I built this trust with my people, with you guys. And I I think overnight got like 500 paid subs and it has just grown and grown and grown and grown from there. It's hard, I think, especially as a woman to talk about your own successes without feeling like you are bragging. And this is the second time that I'm doing this. The first was the Yelp 
uh, Kachina Coronado win and then also becoming the number one food newsletter on Substack. This really, this platform where people like Ruth Reichel and Alison Roman and David Leibovitz have Substack, have, have newsletters. Becoming the number one was probably like one of the coolest and also most imposter syndrome giving things that's ever happened. It happened like two months ago. I never even talked about it until when I launched this podcast. I have called myself like so that people who randomly see this podcast, I call myself the number one food writer on Substack because some people who thought that that was a good idea made me do it. Like they're like, you should, you got to tell them who you are. Like that's who you are. And it just feels insane to me. And it is entirely because I had, I, this woman interviewed me last week and was like, you're on there with David Leibovitz, Alison Roman. Like you have a much smaller audience than them, much smaller following. You've been around less time than them in the food world. Like, how did you do that? And I was like, because my, like my community, you guys are like such strong, incredible supporters. Instagram is this funny thing. Like it can be like both this really toxic space, right? Like we see other people, you know, in their perfect outfits with their kids. And we're like, how the hell did you do that? My kids never look perfect. Whatever. It can be this toxic space where we like com comparison trap. And then it also can be really cool. Like I legitimately feel like I have these personal relationships with like 150,000 women. I mean, my audience is 99.5% women. So I can say that personal feeling relationships with like 150,000 women across the world. And that's really cool. I share a lot about my life. I'm a pretty open book about my marriage, about my work, about my friendships, everything. And I think that allows people to get to know me better and open up to me. I mean, the, the personal relationships I have in my DMs are incredible. I mean, it's so fun and just the coolest job in the world. But it is also, it's built this trust and th that you guys support me and you appreciate my recipes. You appreciate the way that I write and you support them and you support me. And that's how that success has been possible. The way that my villain origin story ends is that in December 2020, so two years after launching What to Cook as a newsletter because no publisher would buy it, two years after launching it, I got a DM from an agent, uh, from an editor named Amanda. Hi, Amanda. And she was like, listen, I love what to cook. My friends love what to cook. I'm, she was moving publishing houses. She was like, I just got to a new publishing house. I want it. I want to buy it. What do I do? And I was like, I just had a baby. Call my agent. She calls my agent. My agent calls me a week later and is like, this girl wants your book. Like she's really serious. She doesn't even want you to write a proposal. So again, when you want to get a book deal, a cookbook deal, you write this like intense proposal, every single recipe, you know, exactly what it's going to look like your vision. For, like it's really intense. It takes forever. It takes like months to write a cookbook proposal. And she was like, she doesn't even want you to write a proposal because you've basically already written it. Like what to cook the newsletter is basically the proposal. She was like, just write. F she was literally was like, just write four sentences about what the book would be or about what to cook is what the book would be and send it to me and I will write you an offer letter. And so like December 15th, Sarah and I have this conversation. I send her the thing the next day because it was four sentences a week, December 24th. Amanda, if you're listening, I think it was Christmas Eve. You're a shark. I get this offer 
And it was a great offer. And that was another really validating moment in my career where I was like, whoa, I did that. It was funny because I have talked about in the pages of what to cook on Instagram. I've talked about how like I've been like, fuck publishers. Like I do it myself. I'll independent publish it instead. I don't need a cookbook deal. But there, and I've talked to my friends who are also cookbook authors about this, writing a cookbook is kind of a vanity play. Like you don't make as much, I'm not going to make as much money writing a cookbook as I will just writing the newsletter. But when I'm at a cocktail party and I say, oh, I'm a newsletter writer, or I write a newsletter, I write a recipe newsletter, people are like, oh, that's cute. When I say I'm a cookbook author, People are like, oh, tell me more. How'd you get the cookbook deal? What was your advance? I mean, they don't ask me what they're like, what was your advance? Like, what was the process? Who's your agent? So much less earnings, but so much more clout for writing a cookbook versus a newsletter. That includes like TV appearances. Like I've tried to get on the freaking Today Show. If anyone has a Today Show connection, will you please help me? All I want is to make a what to cook recipe for Carson Daly. Okay. Is that so much to ask and stuff? Anyway, I've tried to get on the Today Show. My friend Capel, again, works in PR, has helped me so much along my career. She's tried to get me on the Today Show like 500 times. We've been like this close so many times and then like it falls through. Getting on the Today Show for a newsletter has has proved impossible, even though it's the number one food newsletter on Substack, the number one fastest growing publishing platform in the world. But having a cookbook gives you like clout. And it's like, oh, she writes this cookbook. People understand it better. So anyway, I'm writing the cookbook, even though it's actually doesn't earn as much money, but it's a really exciting opportunity. And I'm also really excited because a lot of people don't understand the newsletter. They're like, oh, I don't want a recipe in my inbox every Sunday. Like I want a hardback. I want a cookbook. I want to look at it. And I know a lot of my newsletter subscribers also feel that way. They're like, I love the newsletter, but I cannot wait for the cookbook to come out. Like, I want to hold it. And I agree. Like holding a cookbook, there's something about it. Even my just married cookbook, I there's like probably 20 recipes that I cook all the time from just married. And, you know, I have pictures of them on my phone. I have the PDFs. I could just pull it up really easily on my iPad. But I, every time I come to my library, my library, that makes me sound like a, like a library. I come to my shelf and I grab the hardback book that is like falling apart, tattered pages, oil stained pages, and I grab it and that's what I cook from because it just like feels good to write from a cookbook. So I feel very excited. I spent the first half of this year, January through June, writing it, like writing the recipes. I was like heads down, barely did anything else for six months. It was wild. It's writing a cookbook is just really intense, a lot to get done. So I did that January through June and then the editing process began and it's like edit, do the photos. There's a lot of other stuff that goes in. The day we moved into this house, I was sitting on this bed. So maybe the day after because the furniture got delivered the next day, I was sitting on our bed because I had no desk furniture, no other chairs in the house. And I had a three-hour meeting with my editor that was the final edits meeting. So like November 6th or something, we did that. And now it's off in Never Neverland being printed and sales are beginning and the you know the sales team's working on sales. And I have my kickoff meeting for like the press tour and publicity and all of that next week. Uh, let's see, January 16th, I think, or something. So that this is kind of the next phase of the book that is a little less intense, a little more exciting and fun begins, getting me 
my pub, you know, the publicity meetings where I say, listen, I don't care what we do. All I want to do is cook hella green pasta for Carson Daly in the cards here. Is that why haven't I done it yet? When can I cook hella green pasta for Carson Daly? That's all I want. Okay. That's this next phase of the cookbook. And so that's it. Um, I would, I got a lot of requests to talk about like, what do I see in my future? What do I want next? Um, these like when I do like an ask me anything on Instagram or talk about myself for um, an hour on a podcast, it starts to feel really narcissistic after a while. Like right now, I'm probably never going to listen to this podcast because I feel like so self absorbed. And that's why the interview format of so into that is so much fun. But every few weeks we'll do these and we'll deep dive on a topic that you guys are interested in. So the first one, I felt like for the first one, for the new people who follow me, for the old people who follow me and have no idea, you know, who I am, I felt like this was a good one to start with. So thanks for listening. If you made it this far, um, that was fun to get to run through the past years of my career. I am so out on rain in California. And listen, when it rains in California, 80% of the people are like, thank God it's raining. And listen, I get it. We don't have enough water in California. We get it. Okay. It's dry. We have fire. We have wildfires. We need the rain. I get it. But California is not set up for rain. So if we're going to be so happy about the rain, how about create some activities that are enjoyable indoors? Like everything I can do with my children, this like cool farm stand that has like tons of play stuff, play structures, blah, blah, blah it's all outdoors. Like if you want to get a muffin and a coffee, you get it. And then there's nowhere to sit in. There's no, there's not a single table inside at earthbound farm stands. Okay. Like there's nothing to do indoors in California. So when it rains and it rains for like a month straight, basically like January through February, it just dumps on us and there's nothing to do. Everyone's houses flood because none of our houses are like prepared for this rain, even though it comes once a year. So I'm really freaking out on rain in California and I understand that we need it and I'm really happy for you, California. That's so great. But like, stop. Also just stop. Moving on from that rant to my IRL LOL. Okay. So New Year's Eve, we go over to Madison's best friend's house, Noah's house, who Noah's parents have become our best friends as it goes with, you know, children. That's like how you make friends, right? When you're 30, all of my parents' best friends are friends that they made through Annie's, my older sister's like school. So apparently this is just how you make friends in your 30s. So we're at the Joyce's house, Charlotte and Russell's house, and we've been there a few hours. We've had some drinks. We've had some gummy things that are not gummy bears, if you know what I'm saying. And we start playing salad bowl, which if you've never played salad bowl, everyone writes three nouns down, like the funnier, the better. A lot of ours were like, like Jenna Jameson, who's a porn star from the nineties, apparently Jenna Jameson was written down twice somehow in this round, like Jenna Jameson, what were mine? Mine was like Travis Kelsey, obviously. I don't know. You write down funny things. And then for the first round of salad bowl, you can use any word you want except for what's written down. That's the only rule of the first round of salad bowl. You can use any word in the dictionary. You can point at anything. You can act any. You can do anything you want except for use the word on your thing. And so it's probably like 10 o'clock. We've been there since four. We've been drinking. We've been chewing on things. And everyone has gone except for me. And it's 
down to my turn to determine which team is going to win this first round. We're one point away, and I have there's one card left in the salad bowl. So I pick it out. I open it up. My whole team's looking at me. The timer's on. You get one minute. The timer's on. And the word is schmegma, which is a whole other topic. A NICU nurse wrote this. Schmegma is basically pus that comes out of babies' penises, but that's literally not the point. That's not the laugh. <laughs> but I had to say it. I open my thing and I just say, I'm stoned as a pony at this point. I open my piece of paper and I just say, Schmegma! <laughs> And my whole team is looking at me and they think I'm like giving a clue. The NICU nurses on the other team is like, you can't say the word. And I start laughing so hard. Like I'm disappointed in myself. I'm embarrassed that I've just said the, the there's one rule of salad bowl. There's one rule. Don't say the word. Just shmegma. Just like 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 it, it flew out of my mouth i start laughing so hard that i have to like sprint to the bathroom i'm crying laughing i get fully stuck in the giggles i've talked about the giggles before on instagram if you do not know what the giggles are like you're so lucky the giggles are when you get stuck in a laugh and you can't escape it and like all you want in the world is to stop laughing but your body is like i'm so sorry i can't you can't stop right now you are stuck nothing could be funny and you can get stuck in the giggles at random points in your life it happens to me my dad my mom we all have the giggles so bad it is a hereditary trait so i'm deeply stuck in the giggles i'm in this bathroom for like five minutes like slapping myself in the face like get out of the giggles i finally emerge and like when you finally get out of the giggles anything can put you back into the giggles i finally get out of the giggles i walk back into the party and my whole team is just staring at me like you just you just quit like you just said the word and then you just ran away during your turn so like okay okay caroline the other team won and i back into the giggles have to go back into the bathroom it was just it was just, um, it was an intense IRL, LOL. Like it was a, the giggles are painful. Like your face is like hurts. Like you're like, stop laughing. <laughs> you're just stuck in them. Shmegma, shmegma. Anyway, that's a good word. Um, if you're ever playing the salad bowl, shmegma. It's a disgusting one. We all had to, then the next round is acting only no words. And so we were all just like pretending to squeeze our penises. <laughs> okay. I have a really good, I normally just ask my guests this one and I don't share one because my entire job is to write recipes for what I cook when I don't feel like cooking. But I have a really good recipe that I've been cooking when I don't feel like cooking lately. If you follow me on Instagram, you've seen this before. I make these like egg quesadilla things. So eggs, you know, butter or oil in your pan, eggs in, tortilla on top until it like sticks to the eggs and the eggs are cooked through flip it over so that the tortilla can get kind of browned, add cheese to it, like as if you're making quesadilla and fold it over. It's the best thing ever. But recently I've been adding chili crisp to it. I'm going to try to do a video and post it because it's so good. So I add, I whisk chili crisp into the eggs before I do all of this. And then a little cheddar down the center of the eggs, fold it over, melty cheddar, chili crisp, it is the bomb. And it is not just a breakfast. It is a breakfast, lunch, a dinner, a midnight snack. It fits every pocket of the day. You can have a chili crisp quesadilla. 
So that's my thing that I cook when I don't feel like cooking. Um, all right, that's it. I'm out of here. That was really fun. And I've talked way too much and my children are like screaming in the other room at this poor babysitter. So I'm out of here. I will definitely be doing more solo episodes. So if you have any ideas, shoot me an email, a DM, however you contact me and send me your ideas, please. I'd love it. I also think it'd be fun to do like another section um, at the end of every so into that episode where I answer questions from the audience. Like, hey, I screw up grilled cheese every time I cook it. How can I do it? Or, hey, my son has schmegma. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. So anyway, lots of, I don't know, there's starting a podcast is exciting because you can do anything you want. I can like change it. I can add new features. I can do all these things. So if you have any ideas, let me know. I'm having so much fun with it. And I appreciate you guys listening so much. Thanks for being here. See you next week. Bye.